Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Future of Application Security. Today, I have Amre with me from Dremio. Amre, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Emre, can you tell a little bit about what do you do at Dremio and what do you focus on? What's your scope of the team that you run at uh, Dremio? Yeah, certainly. I'm the head of security and compliance here at Dremio, and I'm uh, mainly focusing on the engineering side of the world. But I, I also put my nose around at different parts of the company for comes to security, and uh, I tag team a lot with our IT security team. They're amazing. I started around like June 2021. And it's been almost like two years now, and it's a really good roller coaster ride, and I'm loving every part of it. That's fantastic. And for the audience who's not very familiar with Dremio, do you mind giving a little bit of an overview of what Dremio does? Yeah, 100%. Dremio is the open and easy data lake, lakehouse platform, and we provide uh, self service SQL analytics, data warehouse performance and functionality, and uh, data lake flexibility across all your data. Uh, so we are already in. Uh, three of Fortune 5, and we actually deliver mission-critical BI on the data lake. And uh, we also are the original creator of Apache Arrow, and we're on a mission to reinvent the SQL for data lakes and meet the customers who are there in their cloud journey. So we're founded in 2015, and we are headquartered in Santa Clara. That's amazing. And it sounds like uh, security will be uh, pretty important for a company like Dremio. Yeah, 100%. And we actually... Interestingly, they designed our product to give the, the customer the data governance that they need and to hold on to their data because we actually don't get a copy of the data. We actually tap into the data where they're from sources, original sources, of it, which are data leaks. And that's kind of the, from the get-go, that was the mission of the company and of the product. So for us, it's extremely important to give the customer the ability to have data governance on their, on their product. That's amazing. So security has been natively thought through and built as a part of the platform from the get-go. We, since we're also a very uh, young company and uh, we build everything on the cloud, which by taking the cloud control, security controls as the primary controls for us, and that works out really good. That's amazing. And you've also worked at some really, really good companies in your previous career history. Tell us a little bit about your journey when you started in security, how it progressed over the several years. Yeah, I guess pretty much all my life was in security. I was kind of like born into it. And from like early ages, 12, 13, I grew up in Turkey, which is a developing country, which means constructions all around you. And then uh, I used to go get like different size of nails and put them on the railroad. And then uh, when train passes, they would, they would flatten them and then we would file them in open mailboxes for giggles, you know, like, like with them. <laughs> you know, it, of course, I didn't know at the time it was it was security or anything like that, but that kind of took me to a, actually a group of friends uh, together into a path where the, the real security part came where we met Linux, actually, uh, like early 90s. And then uh, we founded the Linux users group of our colleagues at the time. And then uh, from there on, it was something to tinker with all the time. And it was just an amazing thing, right? Getting over the security controls, that adrenaline rush and everything. And 
It was interesting how in early 90s, your career could be jail, right? Because there was no such thing as like security. Right. And, uh, and then I couldn't believe my ears and eyes where companies would actually pay you a lot of money to do what we do for giggles, right? So it was an amazing thing for us. And then, and I ended up early 2000 in the United States where I get to get actually a master's degree on information security and which really like helped me take over the, the whole thing from a holistic perspective. And then I, I worked about eight years at World Bank, about four years being on the server security side, four years being on the network security side, which I learned a lot. I grew my uh, knowledge, good leaders there. I learned a lot from them. And then uh, from there, I, I switched to the Valley, Silicon Valley, where Apple moved us from Washington, D.C. to the Valley, which is eternally grateful. I worked there three years, one of the best and worst jobs I ever had in my life. It's, it's amazing to see how no resource like limitations, but you know, you can do whatever you want with security and it's just shift an amazing journey there. And then from there, I switched to Salesforce where we built the enterprise security team from scratch with uh, Zach Powers and, uh, and Frank and Brett and all the other people. And that was a completely different side of the business that we were seeing, which helped me a lot to understand actually where business meets security and everything. And, and then uh, from there, I switched to Lending Club, which was a way smaller company than Salesforce, but different challenges there where we yeah. learned a lot about security automation and everything. And from there, I went back to Salesforce where I led an amazing, amazing set of individuals for product security and uh, build a team and ran the bug bounty, what a crazy roller coaster ride. And then I ended up here where I kind of deliberately wrote my career from like, different parts of security, because I touched pretty much everything from enterprise security to product security to forensics to network security to everything. And then I ended up where I am right now, where I wanted to own a bigger surface with a little shallower than like, for example, product security is a very narrow surface, but huge deep. Right. Right. Uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating journey. I love the story. You started in network security. And one of the reasons I love this is also it's very similar to my story as well. You know, I started my career in network security as well. Back in the day, I used to carry those RJ45 connectors and, you know, Ethernet cables and all that stuff in the backpack. You never know when you had to go into a data center, you would always have like a jacket in your backpack and stuff, you know. Uh, but yeah, eventually, yeah, um, honest, so eventually you went into product security and, and what, from what I understand correctly, Salesforce was your introduction to product security, application security as a dedicated focus area. I did it a little learning club, definitely. And then, uh, but full dedication was definitely on the, on the Salesforce side. Yeah. Right. Right. So you went from Salesforce would be a very enterprise B2B software cloud related things, which would be a little bit different than the World Bank and what you used to do at World Bank. How has this world evolved in your opinion, since you've been around the block for a long time? What is the current state of application security? How does that look like? So looking back, yeah, I own the product security pillar, but uh, of course, not everything at Salesforce, a portion of it, but yeah, we, we always encounter with it, right? Like some sort of area. Even if you're an enterprise security, you got to deal with other people's applications around your applications. And I think the overall, the involvement part of it is different pillars to support, right? I mean, that's kind of what it is, like from STLC pillar to finding the bugs and remediation and giving uh, guidance to the developers, giving guidance to the business. These are very different pillars. And I've seen bigger companies that they're very disconnected. And then, uh, especially if they have a huge team, 
But I mean, the, the disconnection comes from sometimes from tooling, sometimes from the individuals themselves, like the pillars themselves, because it's a big group of people. I think the good thing to do is kind of create some sort of glue to create the interaction. Like somebody needs to know maybe the overall business implications of that bug. How is this going to impact the business? Or is it going to ever impact the business? Right? That's the, that's kind of what it is. Like sometimes you go from one age saying that, hey, you're going to fix that vulnerability because it's a CV 9.8. And hey, you know, this needs to be done, but you don't know actually if it's exploitable or not. Right. And uh, some, some scanner gives you that, that results. And then the other part is like, what happens if you don't fix that vulnerability? Like, what's yeah. the risk of not fixing that vulnerability versus risk to the business? So maybe not developing the feature instead of fixing the vulnerability. I think that part is kind of blurred for most of application security engineers and product security engineers. But having said that, it's, it's in much better state than before. I mean, I, we had amazing progress, right? That are like, right now, frameworks that we're using, especially the UI frameworks that we're using, taking into consideration the security controls more than ever. Uh, we, we did not, but we did not have any of them. Yeah, and uh, also the, the better recognition of the role of the developer in application security, right? It's armed with tools like closer to the ground itself, which we call right now shift them left for some reason. I don't know why, why not right? Uh, maybe the developers don't mind it. It's actually <laughs> the momentum left to scale the yes. security better than traditional reactive application security world. Yeah. I love your synthesis of, you know, what you see on the ground today. And I also agree that makes me think that, you know, this, we've made a lot of progress in finding bugs as well. Like 10 years ago, maybe we were still struggling with, you know, scanning this and scanning that and generating findings. But now it's like, you know, it's, it's very easy. There's so many really good tools to find problems, right? Find issues. And there's, there's a lot of those issues coming up. But as you mentioned, there's also a better path forward because there are secure frameworks, secure defaults, all those things that are available. So I also see this shift in the role of security people where earlier it would be test everything, assess everything, review everything, and find as many bugs as possible. There is an element of that even today, but a lot of the focus has shifted to influence developers to adopt the right framework. And then you don't have to worry about all of those bugs. You get away from that reactive mechanism of finding bugs and, and fixing them and in debt and you know project managing the whole thing as compared to how do you influence the developers to use the secure frameworks that's already available or you know use safe dependencies, use uh, approved Docker base images, all of that stuff. So the role of security people has also shifted a little bit over, uh, over the past few years. Yeah. 100%. And like I said, the, the tools also didn't exist before, right? For, for developers, the tools existed only from a security perspective. And then uh, sometimes you're blind to the developer problems and yeah. uh, professionals. And, and then that's like us talking to an echo chamber, right? Rather than uh, listening to what developers. And right now, it's like I said, it's closer to the developer ground. It's, it makes their life easier, our life easier. And I think you're like an example of that, for example, like before we had no idea if a credential was actually in a, in a code or not. We had no way to detect this. And then now we have tools like, I don't know, Truffle Oak, for example, where you can make a PR and then it will catch it on the PR before it goes into the code. And yeah. that's, that's first thing that give that alert to the developer. The developer is like, oh, oh my God, what did I do? Let me delete it from there. Right. Or whoever is going to have pro the PR is going to launch the developer. So I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also, even up to five years ago, you had these massively bloated security scanning tools that would 
run once a week or once a month and generate all these findings and then you would have to send a report. As compared to now, a lot of these scanning tools are, are integrated into your dev platforms like GitHub or GitLab or what have you, right? And it's like Dependabot, for example. Now, some people would argue that it's not the best SCA, but hey, it's free. It's there, you know, like it's finding all the uh, dependencies with issues and making auto PRs and stuff like that. It's security becoming a native part of dev platforms is the best thing that I would have wanted from the ecosystem. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the good thing is like, you don't have even one. Yeah, three. Four, it's five, right? And then you don't like the Pandemot, put OWASP dependency scanner. If you don't like it, put a tribute. You know, it's there. You have options right now. Right, right. So that has shifted the focus away from just uh, running tools into more, more strategic things that security professionals can and should be doing, right? Do you have any thoughts on what that looks like? Does this evolve into more like manual assessments, human reviews, or just engagement with developers or deeply understanding the business or the dev life cycle. What does that look like? I guess it's the LC standpoint, right? Getting into the project in an ideal phase, it's still an issue. And it's going to be an issue where that's where you actually inject the, the secure ideas in there, right? Like so that you don't make that mistake over and over again. I think that's still going to be there. And the other problem that I see is that the product security team do not work with the product teams. They work with the engineering teams. And then uh, I think you should definitely spend some of your time with the product teams. And that's a different world there. It's not, not engineering. It's not business. It's, it's actually where the recipe in the, for the cook is there. The cook is the engineering team, but the recipe is, is there. And that's where if you can inject your secure ideas in that recipe, that's like, Huge win. Yeah. Call yourself a product security folks the our teams. And that's that's a very important thing. And I think that's that's gonna be more and more in the future, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. I think the other thing that I'm seeing is the blur of infrastructure and application security. It's kind of getting closer and closer together with the cloud adoption, right? And that yeah. writing SaaS products and you know, where, where like if you implement security in the namespace for Kubernetes. What is it? Is it infrastructure security, application security challenge, right? And uh, and uh, if you design a application where multi-tenancy is driven by the namespaces, tell them where where it is, right? Right. You know that's another thing. I think that's going to create some sort of problem for the traditionally application security trained engineers, and same thing for traditionally infrastructure security trained engineers. There should be some sort of like a they're going to get closer and closer together. I think that's that's another interesting silo that we need to break. Hey, man, I'm a big believer in that uh, collapse of the AppSec and infra worlds together, which is why uh, we call Tromso as a product security operating platform, because it's both its application and the cloud or the infrastructure, however you call it. Because even the infrastructure configurations today are stored as code in Git repos, right? So yep. everything could be application or everything could be as code. So it makes sense for us to transform our thinking into a more modern way of thinking about it, which is it doesn't matter what layer of the stack you're in. It's a part of the risk management problem that we have to solve in collaboration with the other teams. So this is an interesting problem. I also want to come back to what you had mentioned earlier, but this is an interesting challenge of you know the worlds of application security and infrastructure sort of blurring together, coming together. How does that change the types of people you hire in the team? Because back in the day, we would look for, okay, as a company, we're using Java, I need an AppSec engineer who's really good at Java. Like that's what people would go and make decisions off of. Does that change now in this world? Do you look for additional skills when you hire product security engineers? 
that's an interesting question because that really depends on your team. If you still have a traditional infrastructure security team and an application security team, and if you can afford that, great, hire them both because this both specialized people and they do what they do best. If you don't have that luxury, I don't have that luxury, and I need to hire someone who's actually willing to learn this. One part, like if they're an application security engineer, are you willing to learn infrastructure security? Great, here's an awesome playground for you. Go ahead and learn it. And which brings me to an engineer who's curious, right? Is there's, there's, who wants to learn, who's, who's hungry about that. And that's kind of what I look for. When I, I, I usually, when I, in my interviews, and people who interviewed with me know this really well, and uh, I don't ask a lot of like specific technical questions. I ask more questions about learning. How can you learn? How do you, how do you kill yourself? How do you, are you curious? How would you get around that obstacle? Right. And that type of things, uh, I think if you worked in an organization that never had cloud, I cannot expect you to know cloud, but I, I know if you know network security, application security, these are exactly the same thing that we implement in the, in the cloud. Right. And are you willing to learn that? Right. Right. Yeah. So you got to spike on that learning and curiosity mindset which is kind of obvious in a way if you think about it, but you have to be intentional about looking for that type of talent because you're not going to be able to find that unicorn who's ex, you know who's really, really good with a lot of experience in both the worlds of application and cloud security. Correct, yeah. I want to go back to one of the points that you mentioned earlier, which is work with product management uh, and not just engineering. I, I was talking to somebody else earlier and I had the same thought as well, because a lot of times engineering teams don't decide what goes on in their sprint. A lot of times it's up to the product manager and the engineering manager as well to decide, is the engineer going to work on fixing the security bug or do we have this customer feature that's more important? So we need the engineer to focus on this other thing, not security. And it's good in a way that you get to the right decision maker, but I would also want to challenge that a little bit because if you really think about security as as one of the criteria for overall quality of the software, then it, it also depends on who's responsible for maintaining that quality. Is it the product management that responds to other types of quality bugs and prioritizes them, or is it a part of the engineering leadership responsibility to drive acceptable quality levels and quality meaning performance, scale, reliability, security, all of those things, right? So I'm curious what you think about that angle of thinking. Yeah, my classic answer to that is it depends, right? Because I've had these conversations with the product leaders before. For fixing the bugs, right? And then uh, security bugs or any other bug. I think that's some sort of a take that problem, right? And then... Uh, so you have two options there. If you, as product leader, are trusting your engineering leadership and team, right? Give them 20% of their time to do tech that. Like, I'm going to manage your 80% of the time. The 20% of the time is, is up to you. I trust you do your, your grown-ups. You know, you do what you do best and fix your tech that, right? That's one approach. That's kind of what we do right now. And then uh, another option is to dedicate a product manager just for tech that or just for security, or just for whatever you want to do, QA. And then that aligns internally in the product team how much of the time or each engineering team is going to dedicate for that product management, right? That's another approach that you can do. Then if you're a heavily product-driven company, right, then maybe that's you, that's the path to do. There are companies I've seen where engineering is actually driving the product, where usually if you're somebody else's cloud, 
that's kind of what happens. It's because, you know, you got to be extremely closer to the performance of a platform or an infrastructure that you serve as a service. And then that, that's kind of interesting too, like to see there. And that's where they have to play this game together, right? Right, but, right. But when it comes to security inside the product, I'm not talking about bugs, right? I'm talking mm -hmm. about, not even talking about features. I'm talking about doing the right thing for the customer as a security, secure by default, authentication, authorization, access control. These are stuff that I, I believe security engineers have a lot to say about. And that uh, not, not just saying, did you do the right thing? It's more like, here's the right thing to do, right? And, and that's where you actually have to engage with your product team because that's where you're going to have discussions about like implementing as a so how to implement it. Are you going to do, you know, OIDC or are you going to do it SAML or how are you going to do that efficiently? What's going to be the flow, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And um, I've seen a lot of CISOs or security orgs also start security engineering teams. Now, you can call it whatever, but at the end of the day, these are software developers that are building security features for the product or for the system. So you talked about authentication authorization. You can, you can add like crypto stuff in it, or even if you want to expose log audit events to your customers, all those things sort of related to security capabilities of your product or the platform that your company is selling. It's an interesting way. Sometimes it just belongs into engineering and you, they just work closely with the CISO or the security team, or sometimes it belongs within the security organization itself. But I just wanted to highlight that interesting evolution where now there are software developers who are building security capabilities because the market expects it. The market wants to see those things as table stakes uh, within the enterprise products. Yeah, that's true. Man. And you probably are going to use your own product to do certain operations, right? And then uh, if you're, if you, your audit logs, you're like saving uh, credit card numbers or address or PII data to your own logs. It's a security issue. It's, a, it's an incident because you exposed PII to God knows who, right? And you're right. looking at your logs. So yeah. Yeah, you got to think about the same thing. And sometimes products, Neither product nor engineering actually are aware of this. And then uh, like as a security person, you actually see it until you see the logs. And that's when you got to go and close the loop and say, hey, you know, here's the guidance for your audit logs. Do not record sensitive data such as credit card, such as, you know, PII, such as bank accounts, ever log them, even in your debug logs, right? So that's kind of what you need to give it in the product. So that product can actually dictate the engineering when they're, they're delivering this. That's awesome. And going back to the different types of tech debt that's generated by security. Now, some of those are very tactical bugs, like, you know, fix XSS on this, this place and, you know, fix SQL injection or whatever it is, right? So those are the tactical issues. But a lot of security debt that is really, really hard to address is also more strategic, more architectural that could need dedicated project or an initiative to fundamentally change how things are done. Do you have any thoughts on how to effectively get attention to those things which might need dedicated resources, more planning, more prioritization, but you can't fully execute it yourself as a security team? Like you need the dev teams to actually do it for you. That's kind of pretty much life of us, right? All the time, pretty much like bugs inside. I think the alignment with business is one important thing there, right? That's kind of what I've learned from a bigger company product security perspective to a smaller company product product perspective. Now, there will be a time when your your security architecture or issue or whatever that big thing is going to be in the path of selling this, right? So that, then you're going you to align with your engineering 
leadership where, look, here's the uh, $3 million deal that is in the line because we screwed up right here, right, for security. And here's the other feature that's going to sell the product another $6 million pipeline. You're going to choose one of them, right? And then and that product, business, sales, and then engineering at the end of the day, of course, needs to be all in the same room, maybe a virtual room, maybe, like maybe in an email, maybe in a Google Doc, right? Or whatever, you, you actually asynchronously work. And then you're going to make that prioritization. I got, you know what? Maybe I'm going to choose the feature right now because it's going to sell this product. And then the company's life depends on selling this product. Let's never forget that, right? And then after that, we're going to switch to this architectural problem and we're going to allocate resources. Because it's that's one thing that we never have enough. It's the resources. Yeah. yeah, 100%. I love the fact that you mentioned getting everyone on the same page and making an intentional decision. And in a way that is accepting the risk for a certain period of time, but you have to have the right people to accept that risk and agreed upon that we will get back to it at a certain point because something else is taking precedence at the moment. And sometimes you lose that deal because of that. And then that means you're not security was mature enough to get that deal. And then you lick their wounds and fix that thing and go back to the customers. Like, hey, you know what? We're better now. Right, right. It's a better story to tell. Yeah. So, you know, one of the challenges that I've always felt myself is when making those business decisions, your security engineers or the people in your team, they might sometimes not realize the the broader strategic decision making. And a lot of times those engineers, if they don't have the full picture, then they get demotivated because they spend a ton of their time and energy in finding those bugs and pushing engineering to do things, but they all they see is their effort going into a Jira ticket in a black hole somewhere that nobody's doing anything, right? Yeah. Have you felt any of that, you know, the challenges to keep the motivations up for your team? I beat that person. So I know the feeling. I beat the, the person who tells the engineers that why it's happening, right? And then I think talking to your team is really the right way to do it. But explaining them the business aspect of it they might be or they might not be interesting, but that's the real story, right? And that's the real reason why you actually shut something do not do not happen. And then again, having said that, the other part of the spectrum is that if nothing is being done, that's a toxic environment. That's for security. It, it's been a lot of there. There's like, there's no other way of explaining this because you you live once, and then you're if you want to be my my currency is impact. That's I always tell everyone. Like of course, every single one of us get get paid great. Right, but my main currency is impact. So if you're not impactful in a security way, there's a ton of hungry people for your for your talent. Right. So that, go there and be impactful. That's that's kind of my my take on that. Right, right. So that's a good point. I mean, you know, you gotta be transparent, you gotta you gotta tell your team the real reasons why, but also be realistic about what is actually happening in the business. Now, if you think about some of the key skills that people need to be successful in the current world of application security, how do you, what do you envision as some of the important things that you know, people in our space need to acquire, get better at over, over the next few years? I think if I have to do three things, right? One of them is be curious. I told this a lot like, in the beginning of the podcast, right? Just question, question what, why is this happening, right? And then uh, try to get to the bottom of the thing instead of just blindly trusting a CE, right? And then uh, can I actually exploit this, right? And then, uh, like if a flag needs to turn on to exploit this and 
check in the card if you ever turn that flag on. If we never turn that flag on, you really don't have that opportunity, actually, right? So be questioned and, and then check yourself. And then also question the intention of the thing that you're working on, right? And then, uh, and which brings me to my third point, which I'm going to tie it together. And then also, like, be firm, right? And here's what we need to do, but not to the extent that you're obstructing the business, right? But you got to be firm and, and you got to be, this is why they hire you to, to count your balance. And then um, have a plan B for the issues that you encounter. Like, let's do this. Oh, we cannot do this. How about this? Right. And then have this plan B for the strategy. And uh, I sometimes uh, jokingly say about it, like we're hired to tell the business, uh, why don't you point that gun to your foot rather than to your face? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like that. That's where we are. Right. I mean, I mean, what? That's the plan B. Let's, let's point it on the floor, but if you cannot point it on the floor, point it on your leg. So, and uh, give the business product and engineering a safe way to get out of this sticky situation, right? That's where you are. And the third point is that be the conscious of the business unit that you're in. Like the, the, the corporations don't have conscience. They're like, they're like human beings, but they don't have a conscience, right? So oftentimes we are the conscience of the product and the business because they want to move fast. Sometimes they don't see the, the conscience effort of it, right? And then uh, I've seen myself calling out the pitfalls of fast decisions that will harm the business in the long run, right? Uh, or maybe in the short run, right? And then uh, call them out. Tell them that here's why it's going to be bad, right? And then if they don't listen to you, fine, right? I mean, at least you do your job, you do what you get paid for. And, and that's why you create a lot of impact. That's what people like you, actually, when you, when you call them out and say, like, look, I think this is the right, this is the wrong path because maybe if we steer this way as a plan B, I think you're going to get the same outcome with a better uh, security posture or, or safety posture. Yeah. I love, love these three things. They're very strategic in nature. Also, they all sound like things that you can't automate your way out of, right? So you have to have yeah. humans in your team who understand these things and are able to communicate and articulate the thoughts in a way to achieve these three objectives. So it aligns with what we were talking about earlier, that the progress that our industry has made over the past several years is that the tooling and all that stuff is now commodity, sort of, right? Like it's, that's not the difficult part. So as a security team, we need to up-level ourselves. That tooling will just continue to operate, but we need to focus on these more strategic things of how to partner effectively, how to manage the risk effectively, how to articulate and help the business with plan A and plan B and, you know, point the gun in the right direction, not on your, not in your face, right? So those are the things that we need to train our teams, train our next generation of professionals into, into doing. Yeah. Be the person that people want to come to you. Not people want to say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to the security guy. That's not, not be the person that's like, yeah, man, I'm going to go talk to the security guy, right? That's, yeah. that's what we need to be. Yeah, you know, it's also challenging because a lot of these aspects are dependent on effective communication skills, right? And interworking relationships. Now, if you look at really, really strong technical engineers, they tend to be not those types of people. Some of them are, and but the vast majority of them aren't. So it also has some implications on how you structure the team, how you complement the skill sets of different people, whether it's through you know, program managers or managers or, you know, some other types of people who are good at these other complementary skills. Correct. And those skills, I think some people believe that they're, you're born with them. You're not born with them. I was born with them. I was a terrible communicator. And uh, I kind of said, I'm going to be better. And I got a lot of 
good learning from different uh, people who were mentors in my life and by reading, by looking at uh, different podcasts and how to speak efficiently, how to be nice, right, to people. Yeah. And I think that's a learned skill and you can totally do it. So give me some examples on it. Like if there's somebody in the audience who wants to get better at these skills, what are the one or two things that they can do? Be a better listener. That's one of, one of the things. And when I say listening, you know, I'm listening right now. I might not be hearing it, right? I'll hear it, right? Because if you don't get that input, it's just like a computer program. Like you're going to get a garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you don't hear anything, you're not going to produce anything. So you need to, you need to be hearing it. And then uh, you need to be patient. I'm not a patient man. I think I've been a better, more patient person after having a kid, right? So, and then uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the other thing. Like, you got to be patient because the knowledge of the people might not be at the same level as yours, and you might need to uh, explain them. But their knowledge on their, on their what, what they do best is way better than yours. So that doesn't also give you a, a superiority, right? And then, because uh, you don't have to show on superior, et cetera. It's just that, you know, get, get that, get the little set. And then uh, that's why listening better, communicating better, and get prepared. That plan B is a good example. I have a plan B all the time. And that, that will make you a more prepared person. Love it. That's fantastic advice. Now, Emre, how does this evolve as we continue to evolve our domains, AppSec, SecOps, overall security in general? What does the future look like? I don't have a crystal ball, but I can probably say right now that with all the developments of the AI, right, and that, that's going to help us writing probably better code, right, in there. And it'll have to probably two impacts. One, one writing side of it. And I think uh, GitHub just released uh, something control something, I forgot what it is, their name, but they now give you this uh, option to use AI or coding. And then I think the other part is that they're going to help us finding security anti-patterns anti better. I think there will be two things there for AI. We can also go conspiracy theories and AI can inject code that, you know, in the future they can benefit from it when they reach singularity. We can do that too. But I think... Uh, that's not five years. That's probably four years. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I see better correlation, deduplication, and less false positive, in my opinion, like in the future, because especially in the sense of measuring the impact of a security bug. And I, I have a feeling that hopefully we will be getting out of the situations like this is a 9.8 CVE, thus the world is ending. Well, yeah, I don't have, I'm not using that function in my code. The world is not ending, right? It's a third-party library. And then uh, I think we we need to be able to tell this type of things better in the future, right? And that, that's totally correlation and then uh, totally deduplication and totally less false positive, right? That's kind of what, what it comes to. Another thing that I really want to see, and I, and I think it's happening right now, even, uh, is like I have, Three tools that does the thing, same thing. I have, let's say, 3B on the runtime, and I have all of the bandits together on the, on the, on the, you know, like just build time. And I want their findings are the same findings at the end of the day. And I want them to be merged and collapsed. And then, uh, so that I'll see that you know, I have an example of issue here, right? And then uh, rather than issue three different places. And then um, I think that's coming, and that's coming really well. And, uh, the past showed us that we actually improved our security posture, in my opinion. And uh, the, with the tools and everything that we do, I think, and I'm hoping the, the trend will continue, right? So uh, that's what we're aiming for. I, I want to have all of us top five and not top zero. So <laughs> well, I want to have it. Yeah. 
That's amazing. Well, Amrit, thank you so much for sharing your insights. This has been a fun conversation and I love the strategic thinking, the insights into like how to actually make AppSec uh, a collaborative function or security a collaborative function with the rest of the organization aligned with the business uh, value, business insights. Thank you so much for being on this podcast and uh, hope to talk to you soon again on the same platform. Same here. Um, so huge thanks for uh, for giving me some space here, uh, soapbox that I can talk. And then uh, I really loved our conversation. I think uh, I'm very hopeful about the future of security and, uh, and product security. I think uh, we're heading to a way better phase than before. Definitely. So yeah, awesome. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.